There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in 10 and branch microfiber. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. We have a really exciting show tonight, an angle perhaps has been that has been covered but not covered by the professionals that we have on the show tonight. And that's from an evidence point of view. What is the defense doing right now? What is Ann Taylor and her team of investigators doing with the evidence from the quadruple homicide case in Idaho. What are they doing? What are they looking at? What are they trying to create doubt with? What is the most important thing, the most important piece of evidence or pieces of evidence that they can focus upon? The panel tonight, we're going to discuss that and we're going to go an in-depth dive into what the defense attorneys and I say defense attorneys because there obviously is more than one, and they're investigators, what are they doing at this point? And how will hard will they be working in the next few months to try to create doubt in this case? And with me tonight is retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy, and I'm excited. Uh, our panel guest tonight, uh, I think we're going to have a great show. I absolutely do, too. And we also have, uh, which has been a, a sort of a crowd favorite, uh, and he's a professor, and he's a retired NYPD sergeant, and you guys all love him, Professor Mike Geary. How are you doing tonight, Mike? Really good, Billy. Thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure. I, I hope you don't upstage me, though, you know? <laughs> just, just kidding, Mike. Because we have another superstar guest with us tonight, the author of numerous books, a, a former Brooklyn assistant district attorney. In fact, he was the chief of the Homicide Bureau at the Brooklyn DA's office when Brooklyn was rocking. And we have with us tonight, Michael Vecchioni. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me. Phil, Michael, good evening. It's Looking great. And I just want to uh, mention, Mike's got these books out, Crooked Brooklyn. You can get them all on Amazon. Taking Down Corrupt Judges, Dirty Politician Killers and Body Snatchers. His homicide is my business, Luigi the Zip, Michael Vecchioni, and Jerry Schmetterer. And his most recent, Fallen Angel, a true crime fantasy, uh, which is going to be a series also by Michael Vecchioni. So, guys, one of the things that we want to well, we want to talk about, the focus of this show tonight, is about what is the defense doing right now? What are they focusing on? Uh, before the show, we had uh, Professor Mike Geary telling us that they had just been given over 900-something pages of discovery material, and so they're getting busy. Uh, you know, Mike, why don't you start out? What is the defense focusing on right now in regards to their job in investigating this case and creating doubt? Mike Geary or Mike Vecchione? Well, I, I – if – as a, I was a defense attorney in addition to being a prosecutor. And um, if it was me, I mean, at this point, what I'd be doing is, is getting to know every single piece of paper that has been handed to me, knowing every photograph that's been handed to me, every tape that was handed to me, every scientific uh, document that was handed to me. And, um, and then I would go from there because you can't start to mount the defense until you know what is the what the prosecution has against you. So that is what I believe they're doing right now. And based on what they learn, then uh, the, the attorney will go ahead and start to construct a, uh, a defense. And, um, and in my opinion, the most difficult thing is going to be the um, getting past that DNA on that, uh, that knife's uh, uh, sheath that was found on a bed next to one of the victims. Um, Mike Geary, uh, you had mentioned when we were off the air about the over 900 pages of discovery material 
that the defense and discovery material, Mike, why don't you just go into that a little bit, what it is, explain to our audience uh, what they'll be doing with that. Okay, yeah, the discovery material, it's a re request by Ms. Ann Taylor. She made the request to the uh, prosecutor's office in Idaho on the 10th of January. And uh, two weeks later, on the 23rd of January, she received a huge file of paperwork that they turned over to her, uh, like 950 pages of material, uh, police reports, interviews with witnesses, um, crime scene photographs, uh, tests, uh, lab results of tests, probably DNA, fingerprinting, you know, all of that sort of thing. Um, at this stage, as, as Michael Vecchione rightly pointed out, you know, they don't know exactly how much evidence, this is just the first evidence dump that they have gotten from the uh, prosecutor's office. And until they really go through every bit of it, they really can't form a defensive strategy. But right now, as Michael said, they're getting familiar with that. They're reading everything over several times. Ms. Taylor will read through everything. Uh, a second seater with her is going to read through everything. They're going to compare their own notes in their head. They're going to have someone look over those crime scene photographs. They have, they're going to be working probably 12 and 16 hour days from now until June. And they will be getting probably again before June, another um, discovery dump from the uh, prosecutor's office. Uh, Phil Grimaldi, uh, you've been a, you were a detective, obviously. Uh, Mike Vecchioni mentions the DNA on the sheath. Now, a lot of people, even in the um, in the YouTube world, are saying, "Well, that wasn't uh, the DNA from Brian Koberger. That was the DNA, DNA from his father." They're already creating doubt. The sheath could have got there several ways. The DNA could have got on the sheath months and months ago, and doesn't mean that it was placed there. What's your answer to that, Phil? Well, I'm glad you uh, went to the sheath because when I heard Mike bring it up when he first was speaking, uh, that's one of the things that I think is going to be a major focal point of the defense's argument. They're going to have to figure out a way to explain how did Brian's DNA wind up on that sheet. Now, we don't know whether it's touch DNA or blood DNA. If it's touch DNA, they can perhaps put a story forward that he did own a K-bar knife, but it was lost or it was stolen. And that's how his DNA could have gotten on the snap of the uh, sheet. However, if it's blood DNA, I think that kind of slams the door shut on anything other than the fact that he was present at that crime scene during the murders. He cut himself and that's how the blood got on the sheet. But again, uh, there's going to be some uh, real hard, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to defend that DNA evidence being found on the sheet at the murder scene. There was some stories about, uh, I guess it was conjecture on how it even got there, how he left it behind, whether or not he was in some type of a euphoric state and he just dropped it. Or was it that he was startled by the fact that the victims fought back or perhaps there were screams again? Uh, that's one of the things that I think defense is going to be looking at. And perhaps they may try to introduce and Bill, you and I talked about this before we went on the, the air, whether or not there was more than one murder in this case. So again, uh, the knife sheet, how was the DNA collected? They said it was familiar to his dad. Obviously, uh, once they had him in custody, I'm sure that they took a DNA sample, compared it to the knife sheet, and I'm sure it was a match. To a person whose DNA was found on the knife sheet. As the document states, at least 99.9998% of the male population would be expected to be excluded from the possibility of being the suspect's biological father. Joining me now is C.C. Moore, head of genetic genealogy services for Parabon Nanolabs Law Enforcement Unit, which has made more than 200 successful identifications of violent criminals. She's not worked the Idaho case. She stars in the documentary series, The Genetic Detective, now streaming on ABC. And she is also has worked on all 10 seasons of the PBS television documentary series, Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates Jr. Cece, thank you for being here. What does this mean, single source of male DNA, which I'm reading from the affidavit? 
It means there were no other DNA detected on that, meaning sometimes you can have a mixture. You can have multiple people's DNA. You want to have single source DNA, if at all possible, because that really just ties that one person to that item. Now, it was likely that this was touch DNA. Certainly it's possible there was blood. They didn't tell us what type of DNA, but most likely it was touch DNA. And that would typically be just a few skin cells. This might've been a very small amount of DNA, but because of today's technological advances, we can detect even the tiniest bit of DNA. Mike, does that help you or hurt you? If I'm the prosecutor, no. If you're the if you're the defense, if I'm you're the defense. The defense. It, it it's you know it it could hurt, it could help. I, I it's hard to say at this point. It's really very very difficult to say. I would make the argument that if it's touch DNA, as Phil said before, that it did, it wasn't because Brian left it in that uh, in that place. He lost it. Someone picked it up and uh, and brought it into the house. And, uh, and that's how it, uh, how it got in there. Keep in mind, guys, you don't have to prove this guy is innocent. You have to just raise one reasonable doubt in one person's mind on that jury. That's all a defense has to do. So you throw as much as you can up against the wall and hope that something sticks in the mind of one of the jurors that says, you know what, that raises a doubt in my mind. And therefore, I'm not going to find this guy guilty. So Absolutely. that's all the defense needs to do. And that's what they should be concentrating on because of this DNA uh, information, you know, in terms of that's that's devastating. As Phil said, if it's blood and there's no there's really very little that they can do to get away from that evidence. But you know what? Take your eye off the ball. Take the jury's eye off the ball. Let them, you know, uh, look at something else in the case and let them say to themselves when they get in the jury room. Wow. You know what? I never thought about that, but that does that's something that that we have to consider. And that's what the defense's job is in this case. Mike Geary, does it uh is it raised doubt that it's 99.98888% of the population happens to be his father and I'm sure after that they tested his actual DNA against uh the evidence that they had. I mean, the idea that uh you know, I gotta remember D, the DNA evidence, whatever it is, if it's blood DNA on that sheath or if it's touch DNA, some skin cells, some dirty sweat, things like that, that's all circumstantial evidence. And people sometimes tend to believe that circumstantial evidence isn't, you know, as, as a powerful or as convincing as direct evidence of guilt. So you may get a, a defense attorney like Ann Taylor. She may say, look, um, it's not conclusive. 99.9998 is not conclusive. Therefore, as Mike Vecchione said, just got to just get one juror to say, you know what? That's right. That's not a thousand percent. It's only 998.98%. Yeah. I can't convict the guy of four murders unless I'm absolutely sure in my own mind. Yeah, you know absolutely. what, Billy? I, I, uh, I think that each piece of the evidence uh, where the defense team is going to try to uh, impeach that evidence and take it apart. Like we're going to use the DNA. We'll talk about that. Perhaps it's touch DNA and the argument's going to be made that he lost the knife or he lost the sheet or it was brought into the house. Okay, good. But that's just one piece of the evidence. We're going to have an overwhelming amount of evidence. We know about the cell phone technology. We know about the video evidence. We know about DM seeing a person walk out through the sliding glass doors in the back of the house. We know about the bloody footprint. Those are the things that we know about. How about the things that we don't know about? Perhaps there's other uh, evidence that was recovered from inside that location of the crime scene that is going to put Brian Kohlberg at the scene. Those are the things that I think that are very, very telling uh, going forward, they only put a certain amount of the evidence out. There's probably going to be a lot more. And again, all of those things, uh, they could be impeached. It could be doubt on certain parts of the evidence. But when you look at the totality of the evidence, when you get into that jury room and you start the deliberations, I think there's going to be a landslide against Kohlberger in this case. Hey, Bill, well, here's the here's the answer to the the uh, in my opinion, the for the defense, for the phone and for the car. He lives in the area. 
He hangs out in that area. He he goes to school not that far away. So uh, is, is there any proof that he was there um, to surveil the house? No, they have his car there. So what? Is there any proof that he was there because of the phone being in the area? No, there's nobody who even says that he had the phone with them every time he was there. Maybe someone else had the phone and, and went into that area. And that's how come his phone was there. Is it logical? Not necessarily, but it does resonate sometimes with a jury when you add all of these little bits of doubt about, around and, and somebody on that jury could say, and it's happened to me, guys, so that's why I know. They could say, wow, you know what? They didn't prove this because I need to know why that guy was, why he was there and the prosecution is just speculating that he was there with the car, you know, surveilling the place. That he was speculating that he was surveilling it and that his phone was was pinging off uh, a tower near there. I, I, I don't necessarily, I, ne I don't think that the prosecution, uh, unless there's other evidence, I, I, I think that they, they the, I'm sorry, the defense could very well have um, answers to almost everything that we know about right now. There may be other things, but that's what I would be doing. And I would say one other thing, if I'm the defense team, what I would do, the leader and Taylor, I would say, okay, who's my DNA expert? And I would give that attorney the DNA evidence to deal with. Who's who's the my technology expert of, of the people who are on this defense team? And I give that evidence to that person to come up with the doubts that they want to plant in the jury's mind. I think that's what she needs to be doing. You know, one Mike, thing I, I just wanted to say, I just wanted to say something about, you know, circumstantial evidence obviously means from which inferences are drawn. So as Mike Geary said, it's not maybe as powerful as direct evidence. However, when you pile up uh, circumstantial yes. evidence on top of each other and all of a sudden it's, you know, 15 feet high, it's pretty damn powerful. Absolutely. Know? And that's one of the things that we have to realize. And of course, I would think that the defense team is trying to one by one take these pieces of circumstantial evidence and try to disqualify them. Go ahead, Phil. Yeah, what I was going to say was, Mike, I agree with you that you could maybe create doubt on the fact that his phone was pinging 12 different times in the area, usually late evening or early morning hours in and around the King Road location. However, the times when his phone is in the area before the murder, uh, it, he shut off his phone. So they're going to look at the patterns. Did he ever shut off his phone before? What were his patterns uh, prior to that with regard to shutting the phone on and off? But then the phone also returns to the location at about nine o'clock in the morning. I have nine 12. And there's also video evidence of that between nine 12 and nine 21 P uh, AM on the morning of the murders after before nine one one is even called. He's in, he's in the area. And again, you're going to have something that is not irrefutable. You can put that out there that who had his phone, but when you have the cell phone and you have video linking together, I think it's pretty clear when you have the white vehicle in the area with the cell phone and the cell phone's never been reported missing. Uh, you know, I think it's really clear cut. I don't think there's going to be a great doubt there. Well, it's more difficult. You're correct, Phil. One other thing. Do we know, does anybody exclude the fact that he might have had a student that he was he was tutoring in that area? Wasn't this guy a some kind of a professor at, um, at Washington State? And um, let's assume that there is someone in that area that he was working with or someone he was doing a paper with was doing that. Those are the kinds of things that the defense will look to kind of dredge up. And if they find one of those, if they find one kid or one person who lives in that area that this guy was working for, then all of that evidence, Phil, becomes doubtful in terms of whether or not it's, you know, the kind of evidence that the prosecution can say, absolutely, he was here because he was surveilling. It, it's, it's, it's a matter of building a, um, a, a case for the defense on the circumstantial evidence, but the opposite way by destroying the uh, inferences that Bill has said the circumstantial evidence must absolutely point to. And um, and the charge, if it's the same as New York, the charge is that you have to exclude every hypothesis of innocence when you consider um, a, a piece of evidence, circumstantial evidence, and use it to convict. So, you know, it, it's a it's a difficult thing but it could be very powerful, as, as you guys have said, because jurors love 
circumstantial evidence. They love to be detectives. And if you could be the prosecutor and put it together for them, as I've talked to you guys about once before, they love that. And you talk about a puzzle and they put the pieces together. And at the end of the day, you say, see, I told you I would put everything together. And here it is. So, absolutely, you know, that. Professor uh, Mike Geary, um, all of this evidence, you said that they were handed over 900 pages of discovery of uh, discovery material. Now, if you were the defense attorney, what would you focus on? Would you go a list one by one or would you focus on the most important pieces of evidence first and go from that, go from there? You got to focus on what's the most important. Um, you got to look the DNA. Absolutely. You're going to have to look for a way to attack that. Just create doubt. You don't, you know, everybody knows how powerful DNA is, but some people like, as Mike Vecchione said, you know, they just might get hung up on it, not being 1000% sure. You're going to have to look at that. And you're going to have somebody go over that who is on your team, who's the best in that particular area. Um, but you're going to have to do a read through from, you know, uh, from A to Z. And she's going to have to go through everything herself and go through everything with an assistant. And they're going to have to be briefing her. This is um, this is what you call um, like an operation for, for a war. This is logistics, how to put together the team, how to get their mission going, how to get everybody working in sync. And um, you're going to look at the DNA. They're going to be looking at the cell phone. Maybe he does have some friends in the area or there are many people's cell phones pinging in that area. It's a very, very popular area. Maybe there's other cell phones uh, from other people who've made similar trips at all other hour, weird hours of the evening that some, um, you know, college students take, uh, you know, hours that they, that they have in their lives while they're in college. Um, so there's other patterns, patterns of perhaps uh, Facebook. Who else is following um, you know, the girls on Facebook. Uh, is he the only person trying to DM them, direct message them? If there's any other similar patterns of behavior by other boys or other women, then again, that also could possibly create doubt. That's as a, as a defense attorney, that's what I'm going to go after. I'm going to look at like maybe three or four huge things that I think the, the prosecutor has the, their best cards and go after those and see if I can create just a little bit of doubt on each and every one of them. Just a little bit of doubt on each and every one might add up in one juror's mind to enough reasonable doubt. I want to put this on the screen, play a little bit of this. After consulting with Cass SA, I was able to determine estimated locations for the phone from June 2022 to present, the time period authorized by the court. The records for the phone show that the phone was utilizing cellular resources that provide coverage to the area of the King Road residence on at least 12 occasions mm -hmm. prior to November 13th, 2022. On all of these occasions, except for one, occurred in the late evening and early morning hours of their respective days. Basically, what that translates to is that Brian Koberger's cell phone was pinged in the area, in the area, of the King Road residence, residence 12 times before the date of the murders. Mike, very, yes. very, very, very powerful evidence there, which goes, let's marry it to the fact that they've had numerous talking heads, as I call them, behavioral analysts from the FBI analyzing this guy's behavior and to them, this is a treasure trove. This is like, oh, my God, this is a smoking gun. He's stalking them before this even happened. How's I mean, a defense attorney can say, oh, he just likes to travel around near their house 12 times. You know, it's very that's very tough to just dismiss. Yes, it, uh, it is, because what's going to happen is that the prosecutor is going to open on that in his opening statement and they got or her, uh, whoever it is. I don't know what the prosecutor is. But uh, and, you know, if I'm the defense attorney, I stand up and my fir first thing I say is, so what? So he was there. He lives not that far from here. Who's to say where does the prosecution have the smoking gun that says he was there surveilling these people? Sure, it looks that way, but thinks looks can be deceiving. You ha that's what a defense attorney has to do. He has to make sure she has to make sure that she has 
at least, a, if not an answer, some sort of a retort to each one of those pieces of evidence that look so powerful at the moment. Now, one of the things that I learned very quickly when cell phones became part of, of, uh, of everyday life as a prosecutor is that, you know, guys like you guys would come into the office and would talk about, well, we have, you know, his phone pinged at this particular area. And, and one of the older prosecutors who was more experienced than I said to me, Mike, that means the phone was there. That doesn't necessarily mean he was there. Where's the evidence that the, that the person who owned that phone was there? Phones are easily picked up, brought different places and found some guy may have lost it. And they picked it up and, and, and they used it or they, they carried it with them to, to various locations. That is what you're up against if you're the, the a prosecutor in this case. You've got to be aware of what the defense is going to say about the things that seem so certain now. Because they're going to raise, without any doubt, Bill, they're going to raise alternative uh, theories or alternative reasons for him being or for those things to have happened. The one and, and and the sheet is going to be one of those things. The sheet is going to be a difficult one, but the sheet is going to be one of those. They're going to have to come up with some reason. And maybe he takes the stand and says that he was, you know, he lost it in the woods in the area there and he could never find well, it. Mike, that's a whole uh, taking the stand, I think, would be uh suicide for him to do. I was that. just going to say you know, suicide. Yeah. I, I didn't say he would. I said there, there are times when you need to put a defendant on the stand, if there's something that is so powerful against him that he has to explain in some way, I, I believe me when I was a defense attorney, I rarely put a defendant on the stand rarely, but there were times when I had to do it. And, and I'm not saying he'll do it in this case. Maybe there's someone else who'll say he lost it. Maybe his, you know, he's got a buddy or a girlfriend who, or another friend who'll say he lost it. But what I, all I'm saying is that the defense has to come up with an alternative. And believe me, uh, Bill, they're going to come up with alternatives to these to these uh, these pieces of evidence. They have to, otherwise, then this kid might as well just plead guilty if they can't Absolutely. come up with it. Phil, you want to rebut what Mike just was talking about? I do, I do, and I'm glad you threw it to me because they're not. Listen, Mike, I'm glad you brought up the opening statement of the prosecutor because I think the prosecutor is going to marry several things together with the fact that his phone was pinging in the area. Prior to that, he started to follow at least one or two of the victims on social media. I believe it was on Instagram. So he's going to lay out and say that perhaps he met. Uh, one or two of the victims in the vegan restaurant that we know he he went to and that they worked at. And then he began to uh, follow them on social media. And then we have the vehicle being uh, in the area and we have the cell phone in the area at least 12 times in the late night, early morning hours on at least 11 occasions, 12 altogether. I guess the time with the 12th one wasn't in the late evening or early morning hours. So I think they're going to marry all of these different things together, Mike. And I think when it's presented that way for the defense team, it makes it a lot harder to refute that. Without a doubt, you have to portray it as a complete puzzle put together if you're the prosecutor. This little piece fits this piece, fits this piece, fits this piece. And what do you have is you have a portrait of guilt. That's the way you have to do it if you're the prosecutor. You guys asked me to take a position as the defense attorney, and I'm telling you that as a defense attorney, what I'm doing is I am taking apart that puzzle bit by bit. And I'm offering maybe sound, they sound like absurd reasons, but they're reasons. And there's you don't know the mentality of every one of those jurors. And I can tell you, I had a case that was absolutely positively, without a doubt, a guilty verdict, right? I had three witnesses. It was a cop was killed. I had the gun. I had the confession from the defendant. The gun was recovered. He told us where it was. The detectives went out and got it from that place. The person who hit who he hit the gun with testified at the trial. And two jurors said, I I'm not sending that young man away to jail. I don't care what the evidence is. Two weeks later, I tried the case. And in 15 minutes, I had a conviction. So what I am saying, guys, is you can't just depend on what you have as evidence and say, I'm just going to throw it out onto the field and, and, and we're a winner. You can't do that. 
And as a defendant, you a defense, you've got to make sure that you can take apart as much as you can each one of them. So Absolutely. look, I, I let me tell you, I if if I if I had my choice, I'd rather be the prosecutor in this case than a defense attorney. There's no doubt about it. But you know, um, but there's it's not to say that the defense can't mount a um, a viable defense, and I'm not saying a winning defense, but a viable defense that gives this kid an opportunity to walk out. For sure. Cheated no more. Thank you for the $2 super chat. Uh, someone just had said that the fact that he turned his cell phone off uh, in en route to the murder location, if we in fact believe he is the killer, that is what Professor Michael Geary would say, Mike. Consciousness of guilt. <laughs> and here's the retort. Who said he turned it off? Ah. Who said he turned it off? Who was in the car with him to say he, he switched it off? That's the kind of thing that you do as a defense attorney. You throw it out there and someone hopefully says, wow, you know, that's right. That's right. Maybe he left it home and in his house and someone else turned it off and he forgot it there. All I'm saying is that consciousness of guilt and Mike is correct. That is consciousness of guilt. But there's a there's an answer to it. And the answer is, did you see him do it? Nope, you didn't see him do it. You knew that his phone was off, but who knows? Maybe it hit, maybe maybe the phone was in a dead spot. Who knows? Maybe the phone was underneath the, his, the seat of his car because he dropped it and it was, you know, it was unable to to, to ping off the um, off the, the cell tower. <clears throat> Just Absolutely. lots of different answers. That's all. That's all I'm saying. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. If you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell and make comments. We'd love to read your comments and to uh, respond to most of them, not all of them, but, but we love to respond to them. We also have a Patreon with three different levels. If you want to support us financially, we have a YouTube channel memberships with five different levels. And you see all the folks in the green font, they're part of our YouTube channel memberships, and we really appreciate all our fans, our subs, and our friends out there in uh, Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Story land. Phil and Mike, and uh, I should call you Professor Mike because they were getting confused with two Mikes Absolutely. on the show. <laughs> Professor Mike, there's got to be, there's so much, so much evidence in this case that has yet to be turned over to the defense. And you alluded to that with the 900 and something pages of discovery. However, that's neither here nor there right now. What we're talking about now is the defense team busy doing their job and working it. And we spoke about something early on called victimology and looking into the backgrounds of all of these victims. And the police did it. Absolutely. Does the defense have to do the same thing, Mike? They should. They should, and I'm, I'm sure they will, because remember, as, as Mike pointed out, uh, he's poking holes in everything we're throwing at him, and that's what a defense attorney is going to do, and the prosecutor better be ready for that. There's going to be uh, perhaps the raising of any sort of innuendo, anything that they can get to discredit the, uh, the four uh, victims. Uh, and remember, this is, we're, we're playing for the highest stakes there are in this game, and uh, you know, no holds barred in this match. And if they could get away with uh, casting uh, dispersions on any of the four victims uh, from their backgrounds that they could f find through their own research, their own investigators going out there, um, then I think the uh, prosecution has to be prepared for that because that's what I would do if I was a defense attorney. Absolutely. Phil, what do you think? Well, um you know, there's going to be a lot of different, uh, you know, positions that they may take with regard to who did the murders, who committed these four murders. I put it out there earlier. Perhaps they're going to try and introduce that there was more than one murderer. Uh, you know, we're pointing the finger at Kohlberger. Perhaps there was someone else that was present that did these murders. Again, uh, when you have four people slaughtered like that. Uh, right away, you know, from the outside, you know, 100%, you know, uh, you look at it, it was possibly being drug-related. Uh, again, do they try to make that connection when they look into mm -hmm. the victims in this case? Are they going to say, 
you know, what was someone here uh, that attended a party that was uh, related to the Cali drug cartel or something of that nature. So again, all of those things is uh, stuff that private investigators will do on the defense side of it. Um, again, there was something else that I just wanted to uh, uh, just discuss. Papa Raja was a person that was identified in a chat room that discussed the finding of the sheet. Uh, I believe the exact quote was based on the fact that they, uh, the, the police put out that it was a large bladed knife that uh, was used on the victims that he believed that the sheet was found at the location. So again, that person said such egregious things that they were knocked out of. They were blocked out of that chat room and no one has heard from that Papa Roger character. Now, if they can prove that that's Brian Kohlberger that made that uh, statement on a, in a chat room, that would be irrefutable. I mean, uh, knowing the fact that the the uh, sheet was found at the location and then stating it later after the murders in a chat room, I think that that's uh, just about irrefutable, Mike. Devastating. Devastating. That would be one of the things that it would be hard to come up with a, um, you know, an alternative theory with regard to that. It really would. That would be Hey, hey Billy, I just thought of something that, that Phil had mentioned. Can I uh, just jump in real yeah, quick? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Mike. Okay. No, uh, Phil and Mike you just got my brain thinking, and I saw a uh, comment by one of the uh, in the chat room like a couple of weeks ago. Um, the timeline too is so uh, narrow from four oh one say to say four fifteen that one of the the uh, listeners said that he it was a gentleman who said four to four fifteen. I doubt one human one guy could kill four people with a knife in that short a period of time. And I think that's something, too, that the defense could say, look, it's physically impossible for one man to kill four people, uh, including uh, one of the four people was Mr. Chapin, who was like six foot three and much stronger and bigger than um, than than uh, Brian Koberger. So let's face it, ladies and gentlemen, you know, the police are wrong. They got Brian Koberger, but there's actually two other people out there that did this crime because it's totally impossible for one person to do this sort of crime, kill four people with a knife in that short a period of time. It may sound ridiculous to us as police officers, but again, the prosecutor could throw it out there to say the timeline is just way too narrow for one person to do it. And maybe you get one juror to say, yeah, you're right. That's ridiculous that one person could kill four people. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily, if I'm the prosecutor, that doesn't necessarily exclude Kohlberger from being one of those people, mm -hmm. but it does create a doubt. And, um, and, and you do have the person who DM sees in the house with a mask. That's a perfect thing for the defense to say, well, what about him? How do we know that he's not part of this, uh, you know, this group of people who did this, or maybe even the one guy who did it. Right. And I can throw one other thing out. I, 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 you know, you talked about DNA. Somebody mentioned before about whether or not the DNA is pure or whether it's only his. We don't know all of the uh, all of the evidence yet. We don't know if someone else's DNA has been found in and among the, you know, the blood on the uh, uh, or on the sheets that they recovered or on the mattresses or anything of that nature. If that's the case, then and they exclude the, the you know, the victims. And let's say there's an unknown and there may very well be, they, you know, it's a college uh, kind of a college, almost like a fraternity house. Um, they now have the defense now has an argument that, um, well, where is that person? Why don't you get that person in or that person is unknown? And how do you exclude him from being the person who was involved in this in this in this shooting? And, and, and again, I'm saying this because I had a case that way. I thought it was a dead winner. And the DNA in a bloody palm print on the wall was um, of the victim and an unknown DNA. And I thought it was going to be it was going to come back to the to the uh, defendant. His DNA was not even in the mixture. It was uh, her. The, the victim's young girl. Uh, I'm sorry, young daughter. It was her DNA. And, and there's a whole story as to how her DNA got on into this bloody palm print. But the bottom line is that any any doubt any doubt is something which a defense is going to jump on and try to make much bigger than it may very well be you know one of the things that the uh, has been raised in the chat and i've heard it raised before 
and if I was the prosecution, I would try to slam the door shut on this, is uh, the drug allegations. Um, is, there, is there any past history of there being any drug arrests in that house? Is there a past history? Is there any intelligence that anyone was selling drugs out of that house? We know that Brian Koberger at one time had a heroin addiction. So that puts that little stamp on him. We also know the most violent murders that we've ever seen in our careers have been drug-related. So couldn't the defense raise that issue, even though it, you of know, course. I think it's important for the prosecution to slam that door shut, but they could. Phil, you want to comment on that? Yes, I do. Uh, real quick, just to piggyback what Mike Vecchione just said. I'm sorry, what Mike Geary said. The video evidence is around 4.04 a.m. is the last time that the vehicle circles. It started circling at about 3.29 a.m. And at 4.04 a.m. is the last time that it circled the location. So, and again, uh, based on the probable cause affidavit that was put forth in the beginning uh, when he was first arrested, uh, DM says that he, it was around 4.17 a.m that he exited the location. So again, Mike, you're making a really good point. It is a very small window, but again, if you're attacking uh, people with a large, large knife that are asleep, I don't think uh, you need a whole lot of time to be successful in, in slaughtering those people. It could probably be just a couple of minutes. Uh, but again, uh, you could raise some doubt uh, based on that timeline, but we believe that around 4.04 is the last time the vehicle circled, so perhaps he, par he parks the vehicle, he walks over and he gets into the location, could be another two or three minutes, and he's exiting at 4.17, so there is enough time in my mind for him to have committed those four murders by himself. There is one other thing that we don't know, Phil, and that is how many stab wounds are in those bodies, and how deep are they? And how, you know, how we don't have any. So the more stab wounds, the more time it's going to take to inflict. So that might very well be something if there are a number of them and they're and they're deep and they're, you know, they're 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 really vicious looking wounds. That's another part of the argument that uh, or an argument that the defense could use to say, look, it couldn't have been one guy. You can't inflict 65 stab wounds. And I'm just speculating. now. I don't know how many stab wounds there were. We don't know. Um, and we also don't know what the toxicology reports are of the people who are dead. To add to Bill's comment about the drug, closing down the drug thing, if the toxicology reports are all clean for these kids, then I would say, if I'm the prosecutor, come on, the drugs have nothing to do with this. Drugs have nothing to do with it. It's just a red herring that, you know, the defense wants you to, uh, you know, to go after. But we don't know that yet. You know, we don't know because we haven't seen the, uh, the science yet. And that's, uh, I don't think any, are any of, do any of you guys know what the autopsy result is? In terms no, you of know, Mike, that's what I was going to follow up with is that there's the autopsy report has not come back yet. No, I mean, I'm no. sure it's the police know what it is. Oh yeah. And I'm sure yeah. the police and the investigators and the prosecution know exactly if they do have blood DNA evidence from Brian Koberger, they know that already. Absolutely. And the other part is you mentioned the toxicology. Usually that takes six to eight weeks. We're, we're past that now. So yeah. that could also be back right now. Without and they're doubt. also withholding that because, look, let's face it. The judge and the prosecution agreed not to call the defense back for almost six months. So they're not going to pacify them by handing them everything on a silver platter that they can work on during these six months. They want they want them to work hard on this and, let, you know, let them find out some of this stuff themselves. You know, one of the things about that we don't know about, another thing we don't know is clearly the, the it seems as if the Idaho police or the state police or whoever asked or the FBI asked the authorities in Indiana, I think it was, to check and stop the car so that they could ostensibly check this guy's hands or look at his hands and we don't know whether they recovered, they discovered anything about about his hands. It's it's hard for me to believe. I've done a lot of murder cases that there was no, there were no cuts on this guy's hands. I don't care if he wore gloves. Um, it it would it's really hard for me to believe that he doesn't have injuries on his hands. And that if he doesn't, then that's another thing that goes into the column of for the defense in terms of raising a reasonable doubt. That uh, I just. Mike, you're you're 100 correct. We said it from day one. There's no way on earth that Brian or whoever the, we didn't know at that time who the perpetrator was. There's no way in the world that the perpetrator killed four people 
with a 12-inch edged knife and didn't cut himself. Absolutely. There's no way. Barbara Butcher, who is the chief of staff for the New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner for 26-year veteran, a death investigator, said there's no way he did not cut himself. Yeah, I agree. I believe, I believe her. She's been to over 680 uh, death scenes. Uh, Mike Geary, Professor Mike, you got a comment on this? No, it's. Uh, I think I got to agree with Mike. If there is an absence of any cuts on his hands, um, and you'd expect that if somebody had engaged in mortal, violent combat, hand-to-hand -hand right. combat with four people, not to have a cut on their hands, that the defense it has to throw out there is like, look, reasonable doubt. Of course he would have had an injury on his hands. This is what happens when you're engaging in combat to the death, fighting to the death in a darkened room with a knife at 4 a.m. Absolutely. No, no injury, no guilt. No injury, no guilt. 100%. Absolutely. That's, that's what I would say. You know, the other the other thing is there was no I we don't know this. I should say I should I should character, uh, you know, preface what I'm saying. Uh, we don't know the answer. But on that sheath. That night, it's a, it was supposed to be next to or found next to one of the victims. Do we know if there was any blood from a victim on that on that chief? Did it did it somehow? We don't know that. And, no, and that's another. That. No, and that's that. another thing. I would I would say if that that chief and that knife were in so such close proximity to this butchering of four individuals, man, I, I would think that there was some even a spray of blood on that that belonged to whoever it was next to. Yeah, but so, Mike, think about it like this. If he pulls the knife out of the sheet and the sheet gets uh, tossed to the side and then the attack occurs. Now, I believe that the sheet was found uh, next to one of the victims wow. either on the bed or on the floor of the bed. On so, the bed. Yeah. On the bed. I, I mean, so, it was in close proximity. Obviously, it's possible that it, it, it could have gotten blood on it. We don't know the answer to that. And if yeah. there isn't, I, I think you're making a good point that perhaps – uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the fact there should be blood on it if it was in the close proximity to victims. But uh, yeah, again, it's just a matter of, again, as, as Michael and I have been saying, it's just a matter of, of creating reasonable doubt in one person's mind. That's all they have to do. You know, I just want to mention something. Someone mentioned it in the um, someone mentioned it in the chat and he someone said, I hope that the police and the detectives on this case are better on the stand, better in court, better crime scene investigators than on the Murdoch case. And I, I spoke uh, about this with Phil Grimaldi. And some of the things that when we talk about experience in homicide investigations, one of the most important things is how you testify. And we've saw, we watched some of the witnesses of the crime scene witnesses in the Murdoch case saying, I have no idea. That's not a good answer. No. Having no idea is not how you answer. The defense attorney's head snapped the minute that that crime scene investigator said that. It had to do with a, f a bloody shoe print being found inside the crime scene. This is on the Murdoch case. So he brings up that, yes, uh wasn't a bloody shoe print found, and it was one of the police officers or the investigators. She says yes. So he his, aunt, his next question was, well, what other evidence was compromised in this in this crime scene and her answer was i have no idea his head snapped back he goes you have no idea so in other words he put it out there and she just uh established that there may be other uh crime scene evidence that was compromised in yeah. the crime scene investigation which i think if she had said uh yes sometimes uh, uh someone walks in the wrong place it wasn't done intentional it was by accident we cataloged it we did show that it was uh the crime scene investigator or another detective that would have been the right way to answer it. But again, you're on the stand, you're, you're, you know, you're in the spotlight. It's not an easy thing to do. And until you've done it a number of times, you're not uh, slowing things down and thinking about what your answer is going to be. She answered, I have no idea. You should have sort of defensive. Devastating. Snap. Yes. Well, yeah. it goes, to, it goes to inexperience. It goes to that. She, she probably hasn't testified very many times. I mean, the proper way is that, I'm unaware of any other evidence that may have, you know, that may have happened. That's a, a satisfactory answer. Not, I have no idea. It's very, right. it's flippant and it's unprofessional. You know? Hey, just, re just remember OJ guys, you know, I mean, that was a, a case that was lost because of all of the way that the crime scene was handled for the most part. So absolutely. You know, JJ, thank you for the 499 super sticker folks this is police off the cuff, real crime stories. Uh, we're covering the evidence part Creating doubt in this case, which um, Ann Taylor, who's in charge of this 
defense is undoubtedly doing with her team of investigators and attorneys with six months to work on creating doubt in this case. It's, uh, it's certainly enough time, but she's got to work on a lot of evidence. And a lot of the evidence, of course, she doesn't have back now because the discovery hasn't come back. You know, Mike, when we were, uh, Michael Vecchioni, yeah. when we were off the air, you said something really interesting, and I would have never thought of it. And you said, if you were the defense, you would be working on that eyewitness. Absolutely. So tell, tell, tell the audience what you said. Look, the eyewitness, or so-called eyewitness, says that she saw this guy on the floor, what floor, whatever floor of the uh, of the house it was, and um, and it and and everyone who assumes that who she's talking about is Kohlberger. My, if I'm the defense attorney, I'd say, well, did you see his face? No. Why? Because he had a mask on. Did you see anything? Uh, and did you see his skin? No, because he had gloves on or whatever. Whatever it is. I, there's no way that anybody can say, even this so-called eyewitness, that that was Kohlberger in that house. No way at all, unless we don't know something that that can tell us. And we, we don't know that yet. But right now, there's no way that you And if I'm the defense attorney, what I do is say, that's the guy who did this. Or he was part of this group if I decide <laughs> to go with a, with a, um, you know, a group who did this. But that's what I would do. That's the guy who did this. And let the prosecution tell you why it wasn't him. And the prosecution can't can't do that. They can't. They can't disprove that this was um, this was they, I'm sorry. They can't prove that it was Colbert, at least not based on what we know right now. So that, that's what that's what I that's what I would do. Professor Mike comments. Yeah. Um, and when you read the uh, search warrant affidavit, uh, the arrest warrant affidavit, uh, that was originally published, it was like 40-something pages. It seemed uh, convincing to police officers, and that's the way we think. But this today's episode is great because it's turning our brains in 180 degrees, and it's very difficult to try to see it from the defense's point of view. But Mike's point is absolutely right on. Uh, there was never actually a lineup done with, with five other people similar to uh, Koberger's height, weight, uh, race, hair color, eye color, things like that. Um, she identified him at, with as a tall, slim man with uh, bushy eyebrows. What does bushy eyebrows mean? You know, uh, so Mike is absolutely right. Um, yeah, your defense attorney, you're going to be jumping up and down, pounding the table and saying, that's the killer, but that's not Koberger. Now, Mike, there's one other one thing they could have done, and I don't know why they didn't. Maybe they did, and we don't know about it. Apparently, this guy said something to her. So there could be a voice lineup if they are satisfied that the voice lineup is going to come back, um, you know, relatively uh, certain that this is Kohlberger's, uh, it's Kohlberger. But I have a feeling that they, if they didn't do a voice lineup with her, it's because they have doubts themselves that she would be able to identify that voice as Kohlberger's. That's but right. if, if she could, if she could, then that's a, another really difficult um, uh, thing for the defense to get around, if she can identify the voice. So, well, you know, Mike, I think we spoke about this on a prior show, and I yeah. think you said, as a prosecutor, and I, I mean, I agreed with you, you wouldn't have taken the chance of doing a voice lineup because if she didn't pick him out, it's really devastating. And well, if she did, exactly. it's, not, it's not really that devastating to the defense if she did pick out the voice. Yeah, exactly. It uh, Absolutely. That's what I'm saying, that they didn't do it. And I think they didn't do it because they don't have the, the confidence that she would be able to identi identify. Now, if I'm the defense, you know what I do? I say that person said something. You've all watched CSI. You've all watched television. Why didn't they do a voice lineup with my client and put my client in that voice lineup? Why didn't they do that? I'll tell you why, ladies and gentlemen, because they knew that it was not going he his voice was not going to be identified. That's what the defense will do. So it's kind of, you know, um, you, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. But if I still don't change my opinion, if I'm the prosecutor and I'm not certain that she's going to pick this guy's voice out, I don't do this. And I and I and I take my lumps later on at uh, at trial. Well, you Billy, know, people always ask, uh, Mike, also like um, and it has nothing to do with this case, but people always ask. Well, why didn't the police do a um, 
gunshot residue test on the guy's hand because if he got to wash his hands or had something like an alcohol pad and wiped his it's not going to show it that doesn't mean he didn't pull the trigger you know so all of those things have to be considered you know what percentage is is it worth it and what percentage is it not worth it because what does it mean to us to have that thousand percent bill you're a thousand percent correct Billy, let me just make a point about what we were talking about with regard to Brian Kohlberger injuring himself. Now, a couple of weeks back when we were doing a show, there was somebody in the comment that said, during basic training, I used a K-bar against a wooden dummy, and I stabbed it thousands of times for hours and hours, never cut myself once. My response back was, well, you were uh, stabbing an inanimate object that wasn't moving, struggling, or fighting back. So we all feel, and I'm in agreement with that, that we believe he was injured some way, somehow, cut himself during the slaying of these four young students. But now, since we're having a great discussion tonight, and we're thinking in terms of defense, and Mike, you really, uh, Mike Vecchione, you really brought a defense side of this. Uh, if he has no injuries, that's something that I think that the defense would try to bring out and say, Without a could doubt. it be possible that someone stabbed four individuals who were fighting back and he has no scratches on him, he has no marks and he has no cuts? So again, a very, very good discussion tonight. We're looking at it from a different point of view and I really like to be challenged on this. This is- Well, you really know, Phil, the, the, the crime occurred on November 13th and he wasn't arrested until December 30th. So whatever wounds he had could still bear scars, but would have Absolutely. been healed. They would have been healed mostly by Correct. that point. That, that's right. That's yeah, but if he, if, he, if he cut his hands, I would think it would be a pretty good laceration. And again, if he cut his hands, blood's going to be at the scene. I, I guarantee that there would be blood at the scene. Exactly now, if he didn't right. cut himself, there's no blood at the scene. That's a good argument the defense attorney can make. Do we have his blood at the scene? No, we don't. We have his touch DNA in the sheet, but we don't know where that sheet was before uh, or after, you know, Brian Kohlberg may have lost it or whatever. But now we have a, a person that slayed four people. There's, his blood is not at the scene and he doesn't have any cuts on his hands. So again, creating doubt. Uh, I think right. that's- You know, you know uh, this, this devil's advocate stuff is really bothering me. <laughs> it's bothering me too. But it's good hey, because it gets you thinking. And listen, if you're going to investigate a case and you have all of this experience and knowledge, you there's some things that you may do to tighten up, uh, you know, uh, situations where, you know, a, a doubt could be created. We're, we're at, without a doubt. Bill, one of the things you said, you know, about healing and that wounds could have healed. But I, if I'm, if if I'm going to see, uh, if I'm the defense attorney, let's say, I would go back or try to interview his students, the people that he interacted with in the days immediately following this, and say, did you notice if um, Professor Kohlberger had any bruises on his face? Did he have seem to have cuts on his hand? Did he, you know, was there anything about him that appeared to? To have been injured, you know, when, when he was in the classroom with you or when you sat down with him in his office, when you went over papers with him, that's what the defense should do right now. Because if they're satisfied that he doesn't have any or that he didn't have any wounds, um, then that's what they should be. They should be doing. And and that negates the prosecution saying, well, by the time the cops got him, everything healed. Well, here's a guy that saw him two days later. And he says he was not injured at all. He had nothing. There was nothing untoward about him. So, well, you know, Mike, that's why the uh, when we talk about the victimology, how many interviews do you do if you're the police? How many people do you talk to? The same question I'm going to ask right now. I'll ask it from Professor Geary. How many interviews should the defense do? How many people do they talk to that they know the police already spoken to? How many restaurants do they visit? They visit that Greek restaurant where a reporter from People Magazine said that he had been in there, and then the owner says he hasn't been. Who do we believe? So do you have to go retrack and interview some of the people that the police already interviewed. Let's find out what's the truth, Professor Geary. Yeah, every everybody knows if you're a good police investigator, you're a detective, you're a police officer, you're a defense attorney, you're a prosecutor, the way you ask a question solicits a certain response. If you ask the question in a different manner, you might get a slightly different response. I'm sure that uh, Ann Taylor has probably at least one or two uh, retired detectives, uh, local detectives maybe, or state police detectives working on this case, and they're going to go back over as many of the witnesses that they think are important enough to warrant a reinvestigation. These people don't have to talk to them. 
but you might talk to a student who just might tell you, yeah, I, I saw a Band-Aid on, on Koberger's hand, uh, you know, that sort of thing, or I didn't at all when we were talking. Um, uh, so you're going to have, she, Ann Taylor's going to have plenty of ability to go back and re-interview not all of them. Obviously, she's not going to have the personnel to interview every single person, but they're going to pick out a, a number of people who may have already been interviewed that seem weak in what they say, or perhaps ask a few other people who haven't been interviewed yet that maybe Brian Koberger can say, look, this person uh, knew me the whole entire time I was there. I talked to him every single day. He'd be a good character witness for me. Uh, that sort of thing. So Ann Taylor is going to have her own detectives going out and doing these interviews. Absolutely. Bill, you know what you do? She'll, she'll decide. This is, this is part A of my defense, part B and part C. So what she'll do is she will then take her resources, limited as they are, and have someone go out and talk to the, the evidence or the prosecution evidence that sets up or that attacks part A. Same thing with B and C. And that, that goes with what Michael said. You can't, interview everybody, but you can certainly interview people who fit or you think might help you with the pieces of the defense that you're going to put forward. Absolutely. Frank Marsha, thank you. Bill, that's what's so great about police off the cuff. Experts are here and can see both sides of a crime and make everyone think about what is right and wrong with a case. Thank you, Frank Marsha. Yeah, I mean, we wanted to play as painful as it is to us who usually work on the side of the prosecution that's what why great prosecutors become great defense attorneys, because they know the other side of the fence. That's why great police detectives can also become great investigators for the other side. And because they know the system, they know what questions to ask. But Frank Marsha, thank you very much uh, for that comment. Absolutely. Uh, Phil, I just wanted you to um, do a little saluted speaking of defense attorneys joe murray attorney at law have you found yourself in a jam are you in need of legal counsel in the new york area do you need a victim's advocate well joe murray is your man he's not only an experienced trial attorney he's also a retired 15-year member of the nypd he literally knows both sides of defense his website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe is a big supporter of Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories, and he is an excellent defense attorney. You know, folks, when I decided to do uh, this show tonight, because basically with the with the gag order, there's nothing really new. but So you can actually look at this case from a different angle. And I didn't just want to repeat something we had repeated, but I thought about what is the defense attorney doing right now? And with the panel of experts right now, I think we uh, raised some pretty good, uh, a pretty good idea of what the defense attorney is doing right now. And of course she and her whole team have their work cut out for them. And they, she's got to decide what should she focus on? That, that will create doubt. And I think we sort of raised that. And the, the most important thing right now, uh, January 31st, uh, 2023, is the sheath with the DNA on it. But that could all change with the 900 and something pages of discovery that was released to her. She may know things right now, of course she does, that isn't released because there's a gag order. Phil, what do you think? Well, uh, I think that, if we're going to take an eyewitness, let's say uh, either Uber driver or DM, that eyewitness uh, can be contacted by the defense and interviewed. However, they're not obligated to speak to that person. So me as an investigator on the case, and I'm sure Mike Vecchione will uh, agree with me, I would instruct that witness uh, you don't have to talk to anyone. You should not talk to the press. Obviously, there's a gag order in place. But you, even though the defense can contact you, they will cross-examine you, understand when you testify, so you are not obligated to speak to them. That would be one of the things that I would definitely try to put forth with any eyewitnesses on any case, not only this case, in any case, because uh, something that is said to an investigator could be misconstrued. They could twist your words. And now you get on the stand and they can turn around and say, well, when I interviewed you or I had my private investigator, you you said this, this, and this, and it's going to uh, not match up to what you're saying on the stand. And again, you could be 
uh, doubted right there, and it could be impeachment of a good witness. And, uh, and Bill, the prosecutor has to be careful about what they tell the witness. You can't tell them, don't talk to that guy. You could say you don't have any obligation to talk to him. It's entirely up to you because the last thing you want them to say is somebody gets on and say, well, the prosecutor told me not to talk to your investigator. Now that becomes now another thing for the defense to argue, you know, to the jury about the, what were they afraid of? You know, that kind of thing. So absolutely. We're going to guys, we're going to start to wrap this up. I'm going to start with professor Michael Geary, always the man of reason. Uh, I heard he went home with all kinds of cuts on his hands over the week. Just kidding. <laughs> he had band-aids all over his hand after the weekend. <laughs> but Mike, final words. Uh, just uh, for your viewers, uh, just patience, just patience. And uh, think about this uh, case, uh, not from a point of view of someone coming up with rumors and speculation, but uh, come to police off the cuff and uh, get the real information right here. Not the, not from the talking heads. Absolutely. Detective Phil. Well, I just want to say that it was great that we had Michael Vecchione on and Professor Michael Geary. Uh, it really made me think about a lot of the stuff that we talked about in previous episodes, how it could be challenged. And I always love, I, I love a lively debate and I love to be challenged because uh, it makes you just a little better at what you're talking about. I do want to mention the victims' names. We've mentioned Brian's name several times. Madison Mogan, 21. Kaylee Gonzalez, 21. Ethan Chapin, 20. And Zana Canodal, 20. God bless their souls. May they rest in peace. And we're going to get justice for these kids. They were slaughtered. They were innocent kids. Uh, I just want to mention their names. And I think we have an obligation to do that since we did mention Brian's name several times. Absolutely. Michael Vecchioni, final words. I just want to thank you again, guys, for having me on. And I, and I want to thank you for taking me back <laughs> more years than I know how to count at this point in okay. terms of my defense attorney days. And, uh, and I want to just say one other thing, and that is, being a defense attorney and then being a prosecutor helps you become a better prosecutor because you know what the tricks are and how they're going to try to trick the prosecution into a mistake or trick a jury into a mistake. So um, thanks for, for taking me back. And I was very happy to play devil's advocate tonight. So it was it was painful for me, but uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Mike, we know you're a good guy. We know you're a career prosecutor, but you did a good job. And I think Mike doesn't want any negativity. He doesn't want any negative comments coming at him. But we know you're just doing what a defense attorney does, and uh, we really appreciate it, Mike. Thank you. I'm used to the negative comments, Phil. Believe me, as a prosecutor, you get them as well as you do as a defense yes, attorney. So yes, you know, yes. you could probably say the same thing about a judge. A judge that then goes to become into private law practice is probably a better attorney because he was a judge. Could be. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. It's all learning process, no matter what Absolutely. you do. Well. So, guys, thank, thank you, everyone that was in our chat tonight. Thank you for supporting Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. Thank you to our elite panel, Professor Michael Geary, retired or actually former assistant district attorney, Brooklyn prosecutor, Michael Vecchioni author extraordinaire and uh straight out of brooklyn retired nypd detective phil grimaldi guys thank you so much have a great night and everyone god bless stay safe everyone bye bye guys One episode, just